This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Nat Tanchich here, stepping in for Hilary Harper. From carbon offsets to biodiversity credits, there's a marketplace of ideas about how to protect the environment. The federal government is touting two landmark policies that use market principles in the hope of reducing emissions and protecting natural habitats. A green Wall Street to pay dividends for the planet. But can you really treat nature like a stock exchange? Let's find out on Life Matters, coming to you from NAM. If you've ever ticked a yes to offsetting your carbon emissions when you booked a flight, it might have felt like you were doing something good. Planting some more trees to make up for your trip certainly offsets our guilt. But does it actually take carbon out of the atmosphere? That's what the government is banking on at a larger scale, leaning into market-based environment schemes like the safeguard mechanism for tackling our carbon emissions and the nature repair market to tempt the private sector to increase biodiversity. But experts are sceptical about whether these schemes work or if it's just, well, marketing. Polly Hemming is the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, and Dr Megan Evans is a Senior Lecturer in Public Sector Management at UNSW Canberra. Welcome, Polly and Megan, to the program. Thanks so much, Nat. Thanks for having us. So let's start by talking about carbon credit and uh, credit and trading schemes, rather. Um, Polly, what is their history in Australia and abroad? Uh, globally, we've had carbon trading and offset schemes for about 30 years. Uh, the concept of carbon offsetting arose in the late 1980s. It started as a voluntary idea. There was a single coal-fired power station that um, planted some trees to offset the impact. It then evolved into a mainstream market um, more broadly, we had a, a, the establishment of a global carbon market established under an international climate agreement called the Kyoto Protocol. And what that meant is rich countries like Australia could buy carbon reductions or carbon credits in developing countries to meet our own climate targets. We've then had a proliferation of, of offset or emissions trading schemes around the world. We've, I think there's about 70 around the world now. The most famous one is probably the EU Emissions Trading Scheme. And of course, we did have a well, what was going to be a trading scheme in Australia in 2012, which then just became an unlimited offset scheme. And so in terms of what we've seen from them so far, what results have we have we gotten? Have they helped reduce our emissions? Um, <laughs> that's that's an excellent question. There have been lots of studies <laughs> about one. the types of carbon trading schemes that exist, but funnily enough, very few that actually assess how successful they've been in reducing emissions. I think big picture, you can probably get an indication of how successful they've been if you consider that just over half of all cumulative global greenhouse gas emissions have taken place in the last 30 years, which is when carbon trading really took off. Uh, it's also really important to remember that they're not actually designed to reduce emissions at a system level. So if you're if you're a big emitter or you're a country that's a big emitter and you're just buying offsets year on year without changing your business model, the best you can ever hope for is maintaining the status quo. Uh, worst case, they actually increase emissions. M Megan, we also, you know, so we have this on one hand where we've had uh, a market um, trading sort of scheme to target emissions in a carbon sense, but it's also being applied to biodiversity. Could you explain the nature market repair scheme and how it works? And is it much different? Is it cribbing notes from some of these old schemes? Yeah, great question, Nat. Um, similar to carbon uh, schemes, uh, market-based approaches for biodiversity conservation have been around for a long time. So, you know, in the 80s, uh, uh, wetland mitigation banking started in the United States and Australia has been uh, essentially been a, a leader in the adoption of uh, market-based approaches um, for biodiversity, for example, with biodiversity offset schemes for at least the last 20 years, probably closer to th 30 years now. So we've had a lot of um, experience um, in applying these schemes and the, the nature repair market is essentially another iteration of these these types of markets. It's a little bit different um, to what uh, the, the carbon credit scheme. So the government is saying that this is a, a biodiversity credit market. 
Uh, it's actually not. It's a certificate market and they function quite differently. So rather than a, you know, a standard kind of buying and selling market where, you know, there's lots of trades and we know exactly what we're getting and there's, you know, fungible units of, of biodiversity, we've actually, you know, each project is only going to be issued one certificate as, you know, certification that certain activities have occurred. And so they're going to be quite unique um, and it's going to function more like, a, like an art sale or a, a non-fungible token market because these certificates aren't fungible. So there's this real uh, hope that, um, or that the government seems to have that this will operate in the same way as the carbon credit market, but it's actually structured quite differently. Um, and there's really no clarity at the moment about how this nature repair market is meant to be working alongside or over the top of our existing um, biodiversity offset schemes. So, in terms of how, like, using it as an art market is a really interesting metaphor, I suppose. Can you really make an equivalence between um, a, a biodiversity project, which is something that grows and changes over time, as opposed to a piece of art that that is fixed, that is a that is a asset that you own? Like, can we really make uh, those two concepts equivalent? They're not completely equivalent, but they. Uh, I guess the, the the point I'm trying to make is that each of these uh, these these certificates that people can buy and sell are only going to be issued once per project. So they're not actually going to really capture all of these kind of dynamic changes that we know occur in natural systems. These certificates are going to be issued essentially when the, the regulator, the clean energy regulator who um, the government wants to administer this scheme, is satisfied that there has been some kind of uh, outcome for biodiversity. So that means that there's going to be you know, potentially a lot of certificates being bought and sold that don't actually really represent much biodiversity benefit at all. Um, so, in addition to a bit of an art sale, um, it's also going to be a bit of a, a used car sale because there's going to be a lot of um, probably dodgy cars on the market um, and, you know, there's going to be have to be – buyers are going to have to do a lot of work to establish whether uh, these uh, certificates that they purchase – are actually of high quality. And this is a, a standard issue that economists point to as a, the lemons problem or an issue of adverse selection where there's going to be a lot of low-quality projects in the market and there's going to have to be a lot of work um, to evaluate whether they're credible. And that kind of doesn't really happen in most other markets, right? You don't go to the shops and buy cat food and have to ask a lot of people lots of different questions to do your due diligence about whether this cat food is actually cat food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and, you know, that that sort of used car market idea, what sorts of things then, you know, what are these lemons that we're buying when it comes to the actual ecology that we are investing in or, you know, the environmental protection that we're investing in? What sorts of projects are going to be um, more popular to invest in than others? Well, I mean, these kind of market-based approaches um, typically really incentivize your, you know, um, easy wins. So, the the you know, quick, easy wins that you can, you know, have have high certainty that you're going to get some kind of environmental outcome in a in a short amount of time. They're not really well suited to incentivizing, you know, longer term, um, uh, higher uncertainty projects, which are more characteristic of some of our most threatened species and ecological systems. Um, it's more likely to incentivize projects that we know and we can predict. For example, we can predict that you know, monocultures will, will grow in a particular way rather than, you know, we might not fully understand the ecology of particularly highly threatened species. So we can't really predict exactly how that project is going to go. But because this, um, the, the, the legislation that the government has drafted is essentially a copy and paste of our existing um, carbon um, legislation, what we've seen, and Polly can um, describe a bit more as well, what we've seen with that um, carbon scheme is that uh, carbon credits are being issued to projects that are purporting to grow permanent forests in semi-arid and desert areas. So uh, that is actually not 
uh, real uh, carbon abatement. Um, it's not uh, doing what it says it is on the tin. And because of that existing issue in that carbon legislation that has been copied and pasted into the nature repair market bill, mm. we're going to see the same kind of, you know, issue where biodiversity projects aren't actually doing anything new or additional. Nevertheless, they're being issued certificates saying that they are. Yeah, it's a good point, and Polly, I'll bring you in on this one because if that is happening when it comes to our carbon offset market, uh, you know, trying to plant trees in deserts where they can't grow, how is this allowed? How are these offset schemes being managed or regulated? Uh, well, they're, they're not really. Um, the the voluntary this is what we've seen in we have so we have a voluntary carbon market that that is global and you will have seen um, recent media there was an ABC Four Corners story about carbon offset projects in Papua New Guinea where no one was actually checking whether the projects were you know, preserving forests um, no one was checking the claims that the businesses were making that were buying the credits uh, so it's complete wild west in Australia. We nominally have one of the most robust, in inverted commas, and and heavily regulated carbon offset schemes in the world. But uh, you know the research by Megan and her colleagues, and and the Australia Institute wrote a paper on this too, has shown that a majority of our carbon offsets are junk. That's uh, been a massive failing on behalf of our regulator, the Clean Energy Regulator, the organisation that that Megan talked about. Um, we had a an independent government review recently of Australia's carbon offsets, the re review panel didn't assess a single piece of satellite imagery or project data. So th they're just not being regulated. It, it says it is on paper, but no one's actually out there checking and measuring. And what's really important to remember is that a majority of carbon offsets uh, or, or carbon credits, these reductions or avoidance in emissions on projects, they're calculated usually using models people actually aren't out there measuring how much trees are growing. They're not out there measuring soil or um, changes in habitat. It's all done via modelling. And, and what you modelling is just based on a set of assumptions. If you put junk into a model, you're going to get junk out. So we might have hundreds of millions of carbon offsets, but who knows what they represent? We've seen the vast majority of them represent nothing, yet they're being used by businesses to say that they're carbon neutral or that some of their emissions are being offset. And that's that goes back to what I was saying before, is that offsets aren't at all carbon trading is not designed to reduce emissions at a system level. It's designed to kind of maintain the status quo. But if the offsets are junk, if the offsets are low quality, but they're being used to justify business as usual or open up new gas and coal mines, then we get an increase in emissions. Yeah, well, exactly like there as a as a concept. And we're getting quite a few thoughts coming in on this too. Sandor is a retired farmer. He writes, what happens to the certificate if the tree burns down and re-emits the absorbed carbon? Um, Polly, it's a bit of a wild west here still. Oh, that's well, that's the fundamental um question around whether you know whether it's a biodiversity certificate or a carbon credit from preserving trees or planting trees we live in an increasingly changing climate trying to use nature or trees to permanently offset geological carbon is completely fraught we saw a couple of years ago almost the entire eastern seaboard of australia was on fire australia is getting hotter and drier. Our soils are losing more carbon. We're getting more floods and more fires. A really important element of carbon offsets is that they have to be permanent. They have to be permanently storing a ton of CO2. But as as your listener just suggested, trees burn down quite a lot, yet you've already released that ton of CO2 from a coal mine or from a, a you know a, a gas plant. Uh, what do you do then? You can't get, there's no refunds. You can't get either of those tonnes of CO2 back. More texts coming in through, uh, Polly, and, you know, they, they agree with your point. Someone here says we can plant, but what's the survival rate of these trees and what guarantee do we have that they're appropriate and well-managed? Just marketing. It's true, we don't. And Andrew and Lismore writes, I worked for some time on the mapping aspects of so-called biobanking. Complete BS, just another way of making sure development gets its way. Uh, the saved areas are remnants and are not usually are usually not threatened at all. And you can't measure biodiversity in hectares. 
Um, it's true. I, uh, Megan got me thinking a little bit about how you make a value judgment about biodiversity. You know, is it like a thousand wetland birds for one tonne of carbon or, you know, what's the trade-off there? Um, and Stephen from Tasmania has this to say, well, the carbon offsets that our worst emitters purchase through the safeguard mechanism be tax deductible, <laughs> i.e. will the ordinary taxpaying families and communities of Australia end up paying for it all anyway? After all, paying emitters to stop emitting is akin to paying organised crime to stop committing crimes. Um, Polly, would you agree with that? Um that metaphor there, that analogy? Oh, absolutely. So I don't know um, whether the, the, uh, the offsets themselves are tax deductible, but effectively, uh, y- you know, regulation has a lot to a lot going for it in Australia. And what we've decided to do with the safeguard mechanism is not to regulate, really. We've set big picture, be really nice if you guys reduce your emissions. Um, you can do it through... Um, unlimited carbon offsets. If you use too many, we'll ask you to explain why. But the government, and I don't know how they're following through with this, but essentially they've set a cap price on offsets for big for big emitters. So these are really rich corporations and the government has said, we don't want to make it too burdensome for you. So we will set a cap price of $70 on offsets. If the market price gets higher than that, then there is the the very real possibility that taxpayers, the government, will be buying offsets and selling them back to industry at that suppressed price. So, yes, taxpayers will effectively be subsidising these industries um, under the safeguard mechanism. And that's just one way that taxpayers are potentially subsidising um, or you know, giving breaks to big polluting companies. Yeah, so sounds like uh, very much a market uh, scheme indeed. Look, you're hearing from Polly Hemming. She's the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute. And Dr Megan Evans is on the line too, Senior Lecturer in Public Sector Management at UNSW Canberra, with you on Life Matters on RN. So I guess we have this sense that these schemes don't, uh, well, you know, aren't aren't that effective, um, can continue to allow uh, polluters to continue emitting. So why do they keep returning? Megan, what's the rationale behind this belief uh, or this attachment to the market to solve environmental problems? Great question. And uh, it's something that uh, a lot of researchers have tried to figure out uh, for a long time because there has been you know, a continued documented failure of a lot of these market-based schemes for the environment, you know, over decades uh, around the world for various parts of the environment, wetlands, biodiversity, um, you know, emissions, etc. And, um, you know, there's some, I guess, you know, suggestions where, you know, well, they're, they're potentially a useful kind of get-out-of-jail-free card where, you know, with a nature repair market, it's, oh, we can't possibly afford to protect the environment with the public purse. We can't possibly afford to spend a billion dollars a year to protect the environment, even though we're spending, you know, $12 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels. So there's there's that kind of, well, we need someone else to pay for it. Um, everyone seems to like market-based schemes. You know, they're politically palatable. Um, but there's some other research. So, for example, Robert Fletcher, who's a, a sociologist in the Netherlands, suggests that you know one reason why they continue to be popular despite repeated failure is that it's like this fantasy promising event- eventual su- success that can be constantly deferred into the future. So, you know, oh, they're, they're going to you know eventually unlock all of this amazing money. You know, there's big, big money on the horizon. Um, we you know, we just got to apply our you know, intellect and ingenuity and we can we can fix it. And that's kind of something that I've seen in some of my research over the last year where a lot of the people that I interviewed, for example, considered that this idea of having this universal single metric or, or you know, indicator for biodiversity impossible. It's impossible to quantify nature and, and you know, turn it into a single digit. But at the same time, they considered it inevitable. So there was this, you know, total kind of contradiction or, or contradicting thoughts that, you know, some of my interviewees held where something was impossible, but it was still inevitable um, because, you know, we can make this work um, and only, you know, only the market can be used to solve a market failure. So it's, it's become this... 
yeah, go please for it. jump in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say to, to to add to that. If you look at to to elaborate on what Megan's saying, I think she's right. They're politically more palatable than regulation and and government spending. Uh, but market based mechanisms and privatisation persist have failed, but persist across healthcare, disability, aged care, immigration detention, electricity, telecommunications, you know, childcare, so many things. Um, so it. It's not just limited to to the environment, and I think one of the reasons that they do persist is that you often don't find out until a decade later, until after they've been implemented, the extent of their failure. So we're only just finding out 10 years after Australia's offset scheme started what a failure it is. And I think, and I'd be interested in Megan's thoughts on this too, there's the potential for the private sector to make a lot of money out of privatisation and market-based mechanisms. So if you look at all the intermediaries in the NDIS, in aged care, in all those things I mentioned, but also in carbon offsets, people are making squillions of dollars. You look at the projections from financial institutes, from carbon offset developers, from industries, like we're talking about trillion dollar industries and, and the same is happening with the biodiversity market. The, the intermediaries and, and I suppose ticket clippers and middlemen stand to profit a lot. So there's a lot of support for market-based mechanisms. There's not a lot of profit to be made from regulation. Well, that's the thing, right, Polly? It's it's sold to us as saving on government budget by letting the private sector jump in and get into, you know, to pick up some of this um, some of this work, and also to or also rather to uh, regulate um, what their their behaviour as well and, and and pollution that they are putting into the atmosphere. But as we've heard, some of that those schemes end up costing the taxpayer. So what actually? works um, from your research perspective when it comes to managing emissions? Uh, I I don't think there's any single policy silver bullet. That said, uh, if we're talking about reducing emissions, carbon taxes have been shown to be much more effective at reducing emissions than carbon trading schemes. They're also easier to administer. We did have something that was very similar, of course, to a, a carbon tax in Australia Uh, that was going to transition to an emissions trading scheme. And over that fixed price period, where we had a fixed price for emissions, Australia's emissions declined by about 2%. And when it was repealed, they increased for about four years afterwards. The thing about a carbon tax as well is tax is actually a good thing. It brings revenue back to the country. And under Australia's carbon tax, revenue would have been used to reduce the um, the cost burden on Australia's households. Under the safeguard mechanism, if big industry are buying carbon credits, the money is going straight into the pockets or a majority of the money is going straight into the pockets of big commercial carbon offset developers and those intermediaries. So you'd also need, you need something fundamental like, I'm not saying carbon pricing is bad, but probably a carbon tax is the most effective carbon price, but you need other tools too. And we had that in Australia. We had the renewable energy target. And I'll say it again, regulation and direct incentives are also really important tools rather than just letting the market decide how things play out or letting big emitters decide how much they would like to reduce their emissions. So there's there's no one thing. Uh, There's a whole suite of tools. In Australia, we're not very good at that. We tend to say safeguard mechanism is going to be the thing that gets us to our 43%. And in the meantime, we have a complete absence of other policies. Yeah, so a diverse suite is required. Uh, that's all we have time for. Sorry, Polly Hemming, uh, Director of Cl- the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, and Dr Megan Evans, Senior Lecturer in Public Sector Management at UNSW Canberra. Thanks for being with me on Life Matters. Thanks, Nat. Thank you. Next, how live music brings us together and can boost our mood. Are you an early career researcher or do you know someone who is? It's time to apply to be one of this year's ABC Top 5. It's a unique opportunity to spend two weeks with the ABC. Learn how the media works and how best to communicate your research. We're looking for enthusiastic scientists, humanities academics, artists and cultural researchers. Head online and see if you're eligible to apply. Just search for ABC Top 5 for full details. If you're a live music addict like me, I'm sure you've felt your mind buzzing with euphoria during a big musical moment. Maybe it was a sax solo or a chorus where everyone joined in. 
It's a good feeling being in the crowd there, isn't it? And it's not just a feeling. It's growing research that shows that live music can be good for you, helping you to process difficult emotions, keep your brain happy, and even feel more connected to other people. One of mine was catching the band you just heard there, Shouse, play that incredible hit, Love Tonight, at Meredith Music Festival in country Victoria. They had a huge choir and bombastic costumes just lighting up the amphitheatre at 2am. And Jack Maiden from Shouse is with me. Jack, indulge me because that was a real transcendent moment for me. What about playing that hit for crowds has been so special for you? Uh, look, it's it's amazing. Um, I think particularly because of the, the journey of this song, um, you know, we recorded it like 2017 with a bunch of friends. And so it's actually sort of still hearing the voices of those friends. Um, you know, we've been around the world and then, you know, get to go to Meredith and to hear those voices, this big choir singing out, um, it sort of, it hasn't ever gotten old and uh, it's special. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it was your first uh, show in Victoria in such a long time, that particular show. What is it about mm-hmm. a, a home crowd that adds to the energy of that experience? Uh, look, I mean, I think we essentially wrote that song to be played at Meredith. So it was kind of this culmination of a huge journey of uh, recording the song and then um, we, my friend and partner in the band, Ed, um, you know, we, we were playing around in Melbourne and then we sort of, we stopped and we got jobs and then the pandemic uh, and then the song kind of came back to life through this crazy route and uh, we, we got finally to be able to come back to Melbourne and then to play at Meredith. Um, I think it was just sort of the, the fulfilment of, the communal journey, you know, our community kind of coming back together. We got a lot of the original singers. Um, and so this is sort of like five years later. So it's almost a little reunion. Um, and it was, yeah, just an incredibly special uh, moment to be able to share with everyone. Yeah, it, it was such an interesting journey for that that song in particular, getting picked up um, by US uh, or yeah, US producer David Getter and getting remixed and mm-hmm. finding a whole new life. But, like, tell me about the space in between that time of creating that song and then finally get to, getting to play it live because COVID <laughs> uh, really saw a big halt to that beautiful experience of live music um, that we, we know and love. How was that for you as, as a musician, just kind of having to sit there at home and, and wait to get that thing out into the world? Yeah, look, it was, it was, I mean, my heart goes out to really all the musicians who are really working because I had actually kind of, I'd transitioned, I became a primary school music teacher um, in, in the, in a year or two earlier. Um, and I'd sort of had, had my musical life, so I thought in Melbourne. Um, and then the pandemic was really, yeah, just absolutely seemed to decimate so many scenes and so many um, you know, the budding flowers of little bands and people coming together, they kind of, they, they couldn't. Um, so I think after, after witnessing that and having been in the primary school setting, which was also, you know, really quite a um, ridiculous, scary, crazy place to, to try to work, um, to be able to come back to live music uh, really did feel very, very special. Um, as you know just as a performer but also you know going to those first parties and first gigs um after the lockdowns they really helped sort of the community come together it really felt like yeah we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that this is life matters i'm nat tenchich and you're hearing from jack maiden uh from shouse uh duo based in melbourne they make electronic music if you want to go see them play live and if you've been having some great live music experiences in uh the past few months especially since covid lockdowns have ended and the scene has flourished again then please uh text in and share some of those experiences 0418 226 576 i'd like to bring in Sabrina McKenzie into the conversation now, a researcher in music psychology at the University of Melbourne. Sabrina, we've been talking about the the power of playing in live uh, playing live music and how it makes us feel. What does the science say about music's impact on the brain? Yeah, so music definitely has a large impact on our emotions and the way that we interact. I guess in research, music listening, oh. Researchers actually say that music listening can stimulate almost 
any emotion felt by a person. And so that's a big statement there. But I guess when we're looking at live music, as you were speaking about before, um, if we break it down, the everyday music listening is quite powerful in itself. And then if we bring that live element in, we've got two other influential factors. So there's one that's social sharing of the experience in a group of people, that social connection. And then there's also that live aspect of connecting with the artists and experiencing that potential for spontaneity or or unpredictability. So like, you know, not every song is played the exact same way and there's banter between the artist and the audience and there's that that connection as well. But the research that I am focusing on um, particularly is the role that everyday music listening plays in cultivating self-compassion as well. So how does that work exactly? I mean, firstly, could you explain self-compassion as a concept to those who might not be familiar? And why does music uh, foster that feeling? Yeah, so the area of self-compassion in research is largely defined by Dr. Kristen Neff's conceptual model. So what she does is she looks at self-compassion in three key areas. So there's self-kindness, there's common humanity and mindfulness. So self-kindness is being kind to yourself, so not criticizing, doubting or judging yourself in moments of pain or grief. And then you've got common humanity, who, which is um, defined as acknowledging and understanding that shared human experience, so not just your own. So it includes um, recognizing that as humans, we may fail and that may lead to suffering and compassionately understanding how to deal with that. And so mindfulness then involves holding those painful thoughts and feelings that we have at times without over identifying with them and so these three key areas self-kindness common humanity and mindfulness are intended to offset negative consequences and they do that by focusing on their opposite positive counterparts so for example there's self-kindness versus its opposite negative counterpart which is self-judgment and then we've got common humanity versus isolation and mindfulness versus over identification so individuals that have these attitudes of self-compassion are better able to cope with emotional hardship um, in um, uh, in a better way and so we've been looking at the effects that music listening can have on so um, on self-compassion and we've been asking young adults to share their experiences um where music listening has resulted in self-compassion. And it's interesting because a lot of the results, a lot of the um, responses that we are getting leads more into that common humanity aspect, that shared human experience. So like, for example, if you go through a relationship breakup, um, a lot of people during that time tend to gravitate towards um, breakup songs. And those songs might not necessarily have a positive undertone. Some of them have a negative undertone, but those songs allow that individual to feel um, their emotions and also connect with the artist or the lyrics and have that shared understanding that they're not alone in their struggles. Sabrina, does that emotional effect differ depending on the type of music or the genre? We've had a text come in that says there better be a mention of heavy metal festivals. And you know what? <laughs> I did read somewhere that heavy metal is has a really positive effect on, on mental health. What's going on there? Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's all subjective. Like music, everyone experiences music in different ways. And I guess the there is this assumption and, and um, of positive music um, having this effect on our emotions in in a great positive way and definitely it does but there's also space for sad music or you know heavy metal or anything that that allows us to feel and engage Um, a lot of the research that's coming back from our study is actually showing that individuals like to sit in their emotions and feel it through music and from that they're able to have a cathartic release um, and be able to then open themselves up to kindness and compassion. I want to talk a little bit about um, your experiences, uh, Jack, Jack Maiden uh, of the band Shouse, and also a music teacher, um, work that you picked up during uh, COVID. And I imagine it's been quite rewarding, um, you know, introducing kids to music early and participating. Like, how important do you think playing and participating um, is in terms of our enjoyment of music, even just singing in the the Shouse choir, as, as you found? Totally. I think, um, I mean, I grew up in a, in a folky world with my um, with my dad and my family, very much involved in lots of sort of group music making. Um, my dad was a, was also a music, is a primary school music teacher. And so that was my introduction. So I actually, you know, really got into music by playing a lot of it. And I think it it is this 
beautiful way of sharing time and space with people, um, learning, you know, sort of a whole different style of communication. And, um, and I just, um, you know, it, it's fascinating listening to Sabrina and um, I love this shared common humanity kind of aspect. Um, and it just reminded me of, you know, what I experienced a lot as a, as a primary school teacher, but also in music in general, is this kind of um, this idea called communitas. It's sort of something that me and uh, the other guy in Shouse, um, Ed, Ed Service, um, who's in America. So sadly, he can't, we, we haven't been sharing our communitas, but um, <laughs> he, <laughs> we've, been, um, we've been thinking about this concept of what is it that sort of is shared between, you know, a heavy metal concert and uh, a rave and, you know, just people sitting around singing a song and primary school music. And um, there was this idea that we came across communitas um, by a musicologist, um, Victor Turner. Oh, no, it was eth- uh, you know, um, eth- ethnographer, sort of uh, Victor Turner. And it's just this concept of a community kind of coming together to celebrate itself. Mm. And um, I think that's the sort of this idea of shared humanity, shared community, um, that music seems to be kind of really, really important for. And, you know, it's all different cultures, communities do it in their own different way, but there's sort of this this idea, the sharedness, um, which I think, I mean, going and becoming a primary school music teacher was really, truly a beautiful experience after having been playing in bands and doing music because that world can be pretty kind of weird and gross and, you know, <laughs> but, you know, sort of, you know, all the, all the, um, the cliches are true of sort of, weird egomaniacs and and musicians and things. Um, But doing it with kids really brought it back to this idea of people just, you know, kids just love singing together and dancing together and they'll just do it, you know. And most people love to just do it. But then, um, you know, as you get older, the opportunities become rarer and you, you know, you, you move into a different space. And so that's why kind of live music events and festivals and things can be so special. Um, I think, like as Sabrina was talking about. Yeah, give us a place to to come together and embrace that beautiful experience of music. And a few people Mm. are joining in on the text line to share theirs. Ruth says, my husband and I went to WOMAD for the very first time. It was fantastic. I had wanted to go for ages, but COVID got in the way. My husband wanted to see what he described to me as a brass band. That was not what I had come for. But as it turns out, they were unbelievable. They were German and I've never seen anything like it. They've been following, uh, we've been following them on YouTube and they were called Muerte and not ah. fest. Yeah, they, you're a fan. Uh, we, we, um, yeah, we we did a, a gig with them in Berlin and uh, recorded with some of them. Oh wow, so they're they're amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just a fascinating little. Uh, connection. Yeah, one, one to check out there. Thanks, Ruth, <laughs> for the tip. And NotFest in Australia was the best, most eclectic crowd, all coming together to rage to some virtuosic music, some beautiful experiences that you are having there. Um, so go out and support live music like that created by Jack Maiden of Shouse. Thank you so much for being with me. And Sabrina McKenzie, musician, music psychology researcher from University of Melbourne. Thank you. Next, what do you think of when you hear the word beauty? For girls of colour, it can mean not for me. We'll meet someone trying to change that next. ABC Listen. Little ears can discover so much with a range of fun ABC podcasts. Like Short and Curly, asking deep ethical questions. They just want land or they want money. All they want is power. And Play School Ears On, working out sounds with familiar friends. Hello! Are your listening ears on? Yep! Short and Curly and Play School Ears On. Find the podcasts on the ABC Listen app. You know how it goes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And from the colonial era to present, beauty has had a particular beholder, white society. Sasha Kutaba Sarago has been fascinated with beauty from childhood, but as a Wachambara Yidinji, Jitabal, and African-American woman, she grew up with a sense of beauty that clashed with the colonial mainstream. This was brutally thrown in her face in her early life, and it started her on a project to reclaim and decolonise beauty. The writer, filmmaker and former model founded Ascension, Australia's first digital lifestyle platform for women of colour, and is continuing this mission in her book called Jiguru. 
It's time to reclaim beauty, First Nations wisdom and womanhood. Sasha, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you for having me. Jiguru is a beautiful title. Where does it come from? Yeah, so Jiguru means beauty or beautiful in Jidabal, and that's my grandmother's language. And what does that mean to you, you know, being beautiful? Do you think it's something we pursue or we have inherently? Is there any, anything objectively beautiful to you? Yeah, it's um, the beauty of spirit and that's the meaning behind Jaguru. Um, when we look at beauty through a Western or a colonial lens, oftentimes we look at it from an aesthetic perspective. And for me, it was bringing it back to uh, the sovereignty of self, of how does someone present themselves in the world as beautiful? And for me, I connect with someone's character, their values, you know, how they connect with their community and others. And often, you know, the wisdom that we hold from our life experiences. And I don't think that's amplified or seen as beautiful uh, in the Western world. How do you embrace Jaguru in your life then? I mean, especially as someone who's been a model and has been, you know, moving through the beauty world, especially uh, a wide standard of, of the beauty world. How have you held on to, to that concept of beauty when everything around you is pushing for the aesthetic? I think those industries really helped me find the true meaning of my Jaguru and it is oftentimes outside of the realms of beauty, fashion, media. And I find my sense of Jaguru when I'm connecting to country, when I'm out away from the mirrors and the scales and anything that reminds me that I'm less than or there is a trend or an expectation that is required of me. What's required of me is to be enough, um, to be me. And, you know, what does that look like and, and how does that feel? It's really a sense of feeling, um, which really illustrates to me time and time again, that's what Jaguru is about. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful concept. And I want to explore a little bit of more of the journey of how you came there. But I want to start with at the beginning, um, because you've had a fascination with beauty since you were a young child. Where did that begin? Yeah, so it started when I was living in the US. I was living in the US from the age of three to nine. And it was when my mother introduced me to the world of modeling. But I also had this beautiful display of black beauty. And that was through the 90s supermodels that were on the catwalks. And it was Naomi Campbell, Tyra Banks and Iman. And to see these beautiful black women commanding a space that was predominantly Eurocentric, it really um, planted the seed for me that you know, I too can enter into this profession. But also my mom was a beauty, or oh, sorry, a beautician. And as her beauty assistant, you know, working in the beauty salon, just to see how women would define their beauty through the different services that we provided, but just looking at the different types of beauty, so different features, shapes, sizes, um, backgrounds, and that was like the entry point of how do we work with women and make them beautiful in a way that is unique to them, and that's where I built like a foundation for my love of beauty. Yeah. What was it like being a child model too, exposed to that world so early and, and having that, I guess, idea or, or pressure around beauty and being beautiful so young? How do you think that impacted your sense of self and yeah, your feeling of self-love? Yeah, there is definitely pros and cons in anything that we do. And, and for me, you know, I really love the fact that it built my confidence and that is exactly what my mom wanted to do. I was a very shy, introverted child. So she thought modeling might be a really good way to, you know, get me out of my shell. But at the same time, when you're immersed in that industry and you are not included in that industry where people don't look like you or your beauty is not celebrated, that's when the issues of self-loathing or comparing and feeling less than comes into play. And it's even hard for even the most stunning model who's you know actively working in the industry not to have any insecurities. And it's this industry that requires you to be a perfect 10 um, at the best of times and there will be always something changing and you need to fit into that mold so you know it's not the best for your mental health or physical health as well i'm um, trying to maintain a certain body size and 
as women, um, I speak for myself, uh, I've had to deal with the changes of my body and accept that to know that I'm, I'm a growing young girl coming into a woman and then, you know, hitting a certain age that the body slows down in some respects. And it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, what are we embracing outside of how our body looks? You know, is it the wisdom? Is it the, the connection that we have with the wider society? You know, are we investing ourselves into something of purpose? And, and I don't believe our purpose is to look a certain type of way for a certain industry or, you know, let's call it the patriarchy. I think there's much more for us to <laughs> aspire to. Um, so there is pros and cons with, with anything that we go into. But, you know, I found that the, the con of modelling really brought me back full circle to where it all began. And for me, it was, you know, through my culture and reclaiming my identity, but then also using that culture and um, to reclaim and redefine beauty on my terms. Yeah. And then so pushing back against that industry that has such kind of rigid standards. And, you know, in the book, you talk about the fact that you were really you met with those rigid standards um, so early in your life, like at, at 11, um, at, a, at a birthday party. Could you tell us about that moment? Yeah, so that was a defining point where it was like a line in the sand of, okay, you once had pride in your Aboriginality and you no longer have that anymore. And it was just one of those moments where you, know, you have your independence as an 11-year-old, you're going to your you know, best friend's birthday party, all this freedom and joy, and all of a sudden you're posed with a question. And for me, it's a question that you know, I'm quite used to, uh, seeing my mother being asked constantly, you know, what's your background? And so the, an adult at the party asked me this. And you know, I said I was Aboriginal. And then it was met with you know, just silence and then gasps and, you know, mutterings. And those mutterings weren't positive. And, you know, I immediately felt like, you know, being Aboriginal was dirty. There was something wrong with that. And, you know, yeah. trying to escape that moment where, you know, you don't know how to react to that as a child. You know, there's so much things going on in your head and, you know, there's no safety there. There's no one to turn to. So that was the first time where my identity was in question. And, you know, I walked away with, you know, a... Uh, a slice of cake and a complex. Yeah, I know it's a lot to carry around as someone who's who's eleven, and then and then going into the world of beauty where that's going to continue being being thrown at you. And that idea, um, I suppose, stuck with you because you, you made a documentary later, uh, too pretty to be Aboriginal. Can you tell me about the process of creating that and and what you wanted to achieve in in sort of reclaiming those words and really getting to the bottom of them? Yeah, I really wanted to unpack this statement and you're too pretty to be Aboriginal is a very common statement that um, Aboriginal women have been confronted with or assaulted with. And, you know, I found this, you know, growing up and you know, having these conversations with my peers and, and other Aboriginal women and, you know, to find that we all had this, this in common or most of us had this in common was quite alarming. And so I wanted to, you know, I guess maybe heal the wounds from that experience from the birthday party and the wounds of other Aboriginal women by, you know, flipping the statement on its head and finding the source of it and un, un, unrevealing the things that are racist about the statement and why it's sexist. And it came, you know, from the frontiers of the sexual exploitation of Aboriginal women by white men and, you know, the sexual tropes that were assigned to us. So it was reclaiming that it's not our fault. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something that was put upon us and we're reclaiming our beauty and our femininity and it has no place for us, but you always have to name something or find the language or the source of where it came from to start that healing process. So it was really important for me to, you know, shine a light on this. And some people don't know that what they think is a compliment really is an assault on someone's humanity, um, you know, their cultural identity. And, and asking the question, what would um, make you want to say that? What makes you think that's acceptable? You're too pretty to be Aboriginal. Yeah, it's it's important to in, interrogate that because there's a there's a sense that these conversations, our ideas about beauty standards and aesthetics, may be trivial trivial, but when there's a cultural tension between you know what you look like and what you experience and the demands of the mainstream, 
you know, why do you think we should we should take that conflict really seriously? I think it's affecting us um, some more than others. And I think it's a really important time you know, as we transition into different generations. You know, what conversations are we having with our young people about beauty, about, you know, their self-worth? And as we are in this digital age, you know, I know what it feels like not to be in that digital age. And it was a lot less um, <laughs> stressful. You know, it, it did come with its complexes, but, you know, this constant bombardment of imagery um, of what you're supposed to look like or this is the norm, uh, it's quite scary. So, you know, for me, I, I think it's really important for us to be mindful of it. You know, people think it's trivial. Uh, it's, you know, something that's not really important. Um, but, you know, how many side effects come from that, um, you know, eating disorders or body dysmorphia, um, you know, the perceptions that young girls think of what their womanhood entails. Is that a healthy perspective? You know, is it something that we need to keep our eye, eyes on? And, you know, with the notion of sex sells and, you know, beauty and advertising and all these mediums that we consume um, multiple times, you know, it does do some kind of damage or it does distort the psyche in some way. So we have to be mindful of that. Um, do we even know what that looks like, you know, in our young people? You know, even, I even write about, you know, how, you know, sometimes our perceptions are so warped that you have grown women trying to aspire to have a pubescent body, um, you know, a figure that it's not, you know, womanly. And then you have young girls trying to, you know, aspire to be, adults um, in these beauty competitions. So it's just this really weird <laughs> space where we're trying to be something that we're not. It's um, something that has done a number on, I think, every woman I know. So it's it's 100% there. And, and with your TED Talk um, and, and a lot of your work has been around the concept of decolonizing beauty. I'm really interested to know how do we achieve that and what does that kind of beauty look like? Decolonizing beauty for me and for others who are trying to understand that concept is really getting back to your authentic self. Um, so it's really trying to tap into, you know, where do you feel your most beautiful and your most jewel? You know, where do you feel your most confident uh, in who you are? And it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's not attached to any system or any machine. It's a raw reflection of who you are um, and that you're happy to, to show up as your as yourself. Um, so it's finding that sense of self um, where it's really quite divine and it's connected with spirit. And, you know, I really encourage people to start to sit with themselves. And I think, you know, COVID really helped a lot of us get to that point of, okay, um, I don't have access to the hairdresser or yeah, <laughs> the nail salon at this point. So yeah. I'm looking a little bit raggedy. Yeah, but, finding uh, but I'm, exactly I'm what we person. feel is is really beautiful, <laughs> that concept of Jagura. I'm really sorry, Sasha, but we're out of time. I really love that beautiful note we ended on. Writer, filmmaker and speaker, Sasha Kudaba Sadago, and her book is called Jagura, It's Time to Reclaim Beauty, First Nations Wisdom and Womanhood. Next time on Life Matters. Miscarriage is still a cultural taboo, a grief hard to define, a health issue little understood, and a dark spot in our knowledge, even though it's how at least one in five pregnancies come to an end. Journalist Isabel Oderberg will share how her several miscarriages opened her eyes to the shortfalls in our health system and culture when it comes to early pregnancy loss and how we can fix them. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.